Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. Well, Tamson and Dan read the paper on February... 15th. 15th, yeah. 2023. Yeah, we're all over the map because you've been in California. You've oh, been... I thought you were going to say, well, we were so busy with Valentine's Day. Yes, we do. Well, that too. We can't go into that. That's private. <clears throat> oh, okay. Yeah. That's for us to uh, you know keep to ourselves. Um, yes. Although you, you did very well with the flowers this year. I did, I thought, yeah. Fantastic double bouquet of ranunculus and anemones. Well, it's easy for you to say. Shades of red. Yeah. Really spectacular. Thank you. So much more impressive than... Really? Roses. Keep going. Keep going. Give me more on that. I was totally impressed. I also got your pretty funny card we're not going to talk about, but that's uh, that's almost harder to do. Not for general consumption. But but, uh, that's almost harder to do. Right, cards are tough. Cards are tough. I mean, it used to be, I could go and you know spend a while away in the afternoon looking at one funny card after another and pick out the perfect card. Twenty, thirty years ago, not that way anymore. The jokes have all been told, apparently, uh, or and forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it is slim pickings. It's not a good business to be in for a number and of the, reasons. And the romantic ones are just goofy. Well, that was always the case. Though. Yeah, that was always true. the case. That was, you could never do that. You can never do that. That's the kind of thing that your grandmother sent you when you were a little kid. You didn't send a, by the way, you didn't send a Valentine's to Hazi or anybody, did you? Oh, I did, yeah. Oh. <laughs> you Why did? Why is that funny? You sent him a card? Yeah. I sent, um, I, I left a card in yeah. a strategic location. Is that pepper, right? Is that it? And uh, it, it had a kitty cat that was, you know, that lights up. Oh, my God. Uh, it, it was did, crazy. Did she so. open up when you were there or not? No, she did not. And I have not gotten a report. Oh, so my God. And I hope was, she found it. And what did you leave for Hazi? No, I sent Hazi a card. And huh? I left, as you know, because Hazi candy. was visiting your house. Yes. I left uh, him and his daddy and his mommy some treats. There you go. You, you, I never know for you. You really have stuff going on. You're sending the uh, grandkids Valentine's, as you should. Well, those cards don't have to say anything at all. They just have a cute picture. So mm-hmm. those are much easier to pick out. Yeah, yeah. And I enjoy doing that. Okay, well, then, good. <laughs> good. I don't want to stop you. Uh, all right. So um, there's a lot to talk about, but we'll, uh, we're going to... Focus on something that's a little bit out of the norm to begin with. And if you don't find this interesting, we'll just move on to the next thing. But I find it interesting because <laughs> it's economics. And I know that you love economics. Here's the thing. It, you know, you're familiar with the drinks uh, Ensure and Boost. And uh, they're drinks that originally were for young children but are marketed increasingly for older people, saying this is the stuff you should be drinking uh, to supplement your diet. It's packed with protein and, and all that stuff. And it's often recommended by doctors. They're also packed with calories. Well, that's that's what I'm going to get to. It turns out that this stuff that people, you know, develop a taste for and start drinking when they're recovering in hospital from some kind of procedure, let's say, uh, are filled with corn syrup and sugar. And... Um, and they're, and they're not really good, good for, you. for you. It's it's not. So uh, as happens, someone's looking to challenge the product. This fellow named uh, Barry Nalibuff, uh, who's now uh, 89 years old, but he, he works at the uh, Yale School of Management. And apparently he has a background in um, drink distribution. He came up with a product called Honest Tea, which I'm sure you're familiar with, that challenged sugary drinks like Snapple in Arizona. And he has some honest kids' juices, which challenge Capri Sun or Capri Sun and High C. And he said to himself, 
Well, why shouldn't I do the same with Boosted Insure once you read the ingredients? The same idea, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a thing that's been going on in the food distribution for some time. And people have been successful with new products. Chobani actually overtook Yoplay because it's lower in sugar. Pirate's Booty, lower in sugar. Same idea. Right. Right. Uh, and he said when he did Honest Tea, he knew distribution would be a challenge, but he had that uh, on the market, being distributed in markets within six months, and it was a tremendous success. Guess what? You can't do that with drinks that challenge, boost, and ensure. <laughs> He's going, I can't believe it. It's been four years, and I can't sell my competing product. And, and the, he's in the business. He's in the business. And the reason is this. No one will carry his product because he can't get a critical mass of consumer acceptance. And he cannot get a critical mass of consumer acceptance because people follow doctor slash hospital recommendations, be it in a in a um, very direct form or even in a tacit form, because the hospital says give the drinks out. So when someone goes and has a procedure done at the hospital of some kind of disease that they're recovering in the hospital, they're handed boost, they're handed insure, they go home with a package with boosted insure, and they have it in their heads that that's what they need to drink. And that is enough of a barrier that he cannot get it out there on the shelves of supermarkets. The supermarket shelves... The supermarkets say no one's going to buy this, and they don't. Um, so he goes to the hospitals and tries to get his product into the hospitals themselves. And they say, you know, Abbott is the company that makes Ensure. Right. We buy a zillion products from Abbott. They make all kinds of pharmaceuticals. This is just one of many things. In order to qualify for the discount that goes for the wide range of products, we have to go on an exclusive basis with Abbott. We cannot carry a competing product to insure, and he can't get in the hospitals. He goes out to things like pickleball courts to give out the product. They say, this is great. Where can I get it? They say, you can get it online. They say, because they're older. These people are older. I don't buy products online. What supermarkets can I get it? Mm -hmm. He says, none. (laughs) So he's out of business. So isn't that crazy? Cannot, of all the products, if it was able to bust out all the barriers, Mm-hmm. Uh, for things like normal distribution. And you know that's highly competitive to get on a supermarket shelf to sell a product that's like right. Honest Tea. Can't break into this market. That's weird. Totally weird. And and then it's common knowledge. And he quotes, they quote all kinds of doctors in this article saying that this product is counterproductive. This product is counterproductive? The boosted and short products are counterproductive because right. they're too high in sugar. So why are they not endorsing They're endorsing, but product. it doesn't make any... Because he's doing... These are experts. These are not... Doctors and hospitals. The hospitals have a vested interest in marketing the other product. So that's that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, that really seems ridiculous. Yeah, and stay away from those products. I vaguely remember your parents being encouraged to take boosted insurance, and there was some reluctance on about part? it. There was something they didn't uh, think really? was good about oh, it. Wow. Yeah, um, but I can't remember the whole story. So it, it may have been that it, you know. Still on sugar. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. All right. So there you go. Uh, so here's another product that uh, came from nowhere, but actually succeeded. <clears throat> Audiobooks. Yeah. And uh, this, I thought, was a remarkable story. Uh, you showed it to me. It's a, really the story. It's an obituary of Marianne Mantell. Yeah. Um, who passed away at the age of 93 at her home in Princeton. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In Princeton, um, right. Interestingly enough. Yeah. And uh, 
she and a friend um, from, you know, a friend just out of college yeah. in 1952 basically founded Cadman Records, a pioneer spoken word label specializing in great literature. Yeah. So she, um, Mantel, I guess is her married name. Uh, she uh, escaped uh, from uh, Nazi Germany in the right. 30s mm-hmm. with her family mm-hmm. uh, as a young girl. And after a brief stay in London, they uh, ended up in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she uh, was a... She played the violin and was a fan of classical literature. Ended up, I guess, going to uh, Hunter, where she got, uh, where she was uh, Phi Beta Kappa in Greek. And uh, she's got her first job. She's uh, making ends meet as a freelancer, uh, writing liner notes and translating opera librettos for classical records. Wow. So she's struggling, you know, trying to figure out, yeah. you know, how she, uh, I mean, it, it's funny. I mean, that's uh, back in what, like the 40s or something, mm-hmm. uh, late 40s. And, you know, she's got the same uh, challenges that a lot of kids now have. You know, she has this yeah. degree in Greek literature. Now what do I do? Mm-hmm. Um, and what she does is uh, joins with a friend and, uh, you know, she's trying to encourage, she's trying to get uh, record labels interested in recording books, recording literature. Right. And she can't uh, drum up any interest. So she and her friend actually decide to, they scratch together $1,800, which is a lot of money in the early 50s, right? Right. Uh, So that's impressive. And uh, they decide, you know, they're going to uh, um, record uh, some poetry. Or something, and one of the first people they put their sights on is um, Dylan Thomas, right. okay, who's kind of in then, right? Yeah, well, he's still you know a highly revered poet. I mean, it's a big name. Yeah, yeah. but I really think of him as uh, mid-century. Yeah, you know. Yeah, uh, but it's a standout name. It, it, it's a serious yeah. name. It's a serious name. And they're trying to get his attention. They want to record yeah. uh, his uh, poetry. And so they stalk him at the che- Chelsea Hotel. Yeah. And they finally um, manage to nab him on his way back from like an all-night party or drinking or right. something at 5 a.m. Yeah, this is And crazy. somehow they convince him yeah. that he's going to come read uh, his poetry for them. And uh, he does come. Well, I tell you, they convinced him. They offered him some money. Apparently, he needed money too. So, if I remember correctly, they offered him, you know, like five hundred dollars. Even or something. so, they he, must have been. Uh, uh, well, I guess it was five hundred dollars initial plus ten dollars in royalties for sales above a thousand. Yeah. So you're right. They use you know that kind of carrot. Right. But um, it's still kind of amazing. They talked him into it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, right. two two kids. Right. Two kids. Right. You know. Um, who are just starting a company. And uh, um, so he um, records five poems, including Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Right. Um, and uh, they still need a B-side. And he suggests, why not, you know, instead of poetry, um, prose, specifically his A Child's Christmas in Wales. 
and uh, the rest is history. Yeah. They know while they're listening to him read yeah. that it's an amazing historic recording. And it, and it succeeds tremendously. And even I know of that story. I know of it too. I feel like I've seen it in the library, in the audio section. Well, but they say he read very well. Can you imagine hearing Dylan Thomas actually read A Child's Christmas in Wales? I mean, mean, my my indelible wasn't, there was like, uh, no, I didn't, I'll uh, scrap that. But anyway, um, that was a start. And then uh, from there, they're off to the races. And they end up recording uh, just... uh, all kinds of luminaries um, and, uh, you know, T.S. Eliot, Sylvia Plath, William Faulkner, um, Langston Hughes, Gertrude Stein, um, with great readers, Laurence Olivier, John Gilgood, Vanessa Redgrave, Ruby Dee, um, Albert Camus, uh, Tolkien, you know. Uh, yeah, they have Tolkien reading his own stuff. Yeah. Right. So, um, and it just, uh, you know, is a huge success. And it's interesting to think about. It. I mean, people do mention in this obituary that they're really um, exploring a new technology, a different technology, you know, expanding um, the way uh, books are uh, distributed. And I assume the original recording was on a record. I mean, you say the yes. B-side, so it has to be a record. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they were records in the 50s. Um, they By the early 70s, though, um, Ms. Mantel was ready to move on, and the partners sold the company um, to uh, D.C. Heath. Uh, and uh, they go from there. Um And uh, just uh, to kind of sum up uh, uh, what she says about it, we were not just out to preserve celebrity voices to the extent that a poet is a celebrity. Our purpose was literary, to capture on tape as nearly as possible what the poet heard in his head as he wrote. Yeah, I mean, the most vivid thing in the articles when they're saying there, they're listening and suddenly they hear Dylan Thomas read The Child's Christmas in Wales and they say to themselves, holy shit. Um, I don't think they said that. Daniel. That's what they, they said. said. What we heard was a thunderbolt. That's that. Okay? that I'm putting it in modern These were lingo. Young college-educated ladies that's in a, the that's what that's 50s. what holy shit means. Then. <laughs> right. Thunderbolt. That's, that's what it means. But that's got to be really exciting when you're um, trying to start a new. I business. wouldn't mind hearing that. Yeah, I wouldn't mind yeah, hearing we that should now. Listen to it. We should definitely listen yeah. to it. I'm sure um, YouTube's got it. Um, no doubt about it. Uh, and uh, you know they they mentioned that you know. It had a lot of effects, including bringing highbrow literature accessible to a mass audience. I think that's a little bit of an exaggeration. I, books, it's an exaggeration. Books are available to I, a mass audience. It's an exaggeration, audience. but you know something? Go back to Child's Christmas in Wales. I, I'm sure they, 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 they lit a fire under that. Um, I don't think it's accessible so much as um, desirable or... Um, what would you call attractive mm-hmm. to a mass audience mm-hmm. uh, by virtue of being it being read? Yeah, I think by virtue of having it read by Dylan Thomas. I think I'm sure he that added a lot. I'm sure he he had a distinctive voice. Um, so, well, yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. Marianne Mantel. Yeah. So there is an article. Uh, let me talk about the Super Bowl because I know everyone wants to hear my views on the Super Bowl. Um, 
But I'll give you it in, in, in an oblique way. Listen, can can you tell me first? Yeah. Before you go into all your details. Yeah, I'm not going to go. Did you think you. it was an enjoyable game? It was until the last minute. It was a very enjoyable game. It was unfortunately, as sometimes happens, the game ends on a penalty, and you say, "Oh, geez, that took all the juice out of it." Holy shit! Yeah, <laughs> thunderbolt. Yeah, but that. What are you going to do? Um, it, but the giant. By by coincidence, the Times had uh, written an article. Uh, the day um, before the game, or several days before the game, um, maybe the day of the game, about George Toma. George Toma being uh, the most famous groundskeeper there is, 94 years old, the immortal, quote, God of Sod. He is, he, he's been, <laughs> God the, of Sod. that's what he's called. And I, you, I, even I'm aware of him. And he's been in Kansas City for a long time, working in the stadiums there. But, you know, he's the best, best expert on uh, what kind of grass should be grown in the stadiums and how you're going to repair bad grass and how you're going to deal with turning over from one event to another and fixing divots and doing all kinds of things. He is the gold standard and has been for years. And the article is talking about his experience beginning when they used to, they hired him for the first Super Bowl and they said, here's $500, spend it any way you want, fix up the field. Mm-hmm. And now the, the budget's like three quarters of a million dollars, mm-hmm. fix up the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was the groundskeeper emeritus. They, that's what they call him, an emeritus groundskeeper. And he advises as he was advising for the Super Bowl. So the article is, you know, is about a guy who I'm familiar with and it's kind of the article you'd expect. And what was funny is that when we watched the Super Bowl, the biggest problem in the game was the groundskeeping because the players kept slipping through right. the entire game. Yeah. And the, that's not the kind of thing the announcers want to talk about. Because but they did mention it. They mentioned it again and again. And, it, and and because that really gets under the skin of the league. That's a big fail. Mm-hmm. Because the people can't perform if they're slipping while they're playing. And, I, and um, I will tell you that that is one of the reasons, if not the biggest reasons, the Eagles lost the game. Because they depend on their pass rush mm-hmm. from their front four, from their defensive linemen. And... The key thing, one of the key things for a pass rush to succeed is getting off the ball quickly. Mm-hmm. They need firm ground. In other words, if you play a game in the rain, all the odds makers and betters know you're not going to see a pass rush in that game because men that size can't get going on a wet field. Mm-hmm. Well, these guys couldn't get going on a slippery field. Mm-hmm. And to, for the Philly, Philadelphia Eagles to lose that pass rush was to lose a heck of a lot. Yeah. And I think that's why they lost the game. And I, I don't know what went wrong. I mean, if Tom was around, uh, you can't imagine anything could go wrong. It was clearly on the well, painted the, surface. The, the fear is that he was probably, you know, was he walking around saying, I don't know about this painted field. This is going to be a mess. It's not a, going, thank you, George. Why don't you I'm sure that was happening. I'm sure that's what happened. Insure and a little boost you might yeah, have right, right, right. over yeah, on the yeah. side. I'm sure uh, they ignored yeah. him. I'm sure they ignored him. And maybe the day will come. There has to be an explanation for this. Because I know they were saying they're slipping particularly on the painted portions. And they showed the kick. The kickers couldn't plant their feet to kick. Which mm-hmm. is, you know, obviously as basic as it can get. You want the kickers to be able to plant their left foot when they kick with their right. Couldn't do it. Uh, but the idea of painting the surface of the field is not new. It's not like you say, oh, well, gee, you can't see But it seemed like that. it was a lot of paint. Is a lot that of part of the deal? I can't tell you. I, it, 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 it was ridiculous. I mean, uh, yeah. I will say that they do mention the first Super Bowl. He asked them, do you want any paint in the field? And what do you want? And they said, use your own judgment. 
Uh, now I don't think it's that way anymore. Yeah. And now I, I think they're told what to do. So that was a big uh, fail. And that, that kind of kind of hurt the game. And I think you're going to see an article three months from now about controversy and people at the last second decided to do X and Y to the field and it screwed it up. Um, He's probably going to be a gentleman and not comment. Well, it's not going to come from I would love to know the inside it's story. A, well, he might comment. When, you know, when you get to be that age, you don't care. Right? You say what you, it's on your I mind. Know. You can go either way. You can also be... I'm at that age. I don't care. I, I'd be I'd be blasting it out. So there was an article also, which I thought was kind of interesting, at least resonated with me, called Watching and Listening Sports Made Me Who I Am, a fellow named Peter Weiner. And I don't know who he is, so I don't, I don't care that it made him who he is. But it it happened to be, you know, it's one of those articles about a guy who's approximately our age, a few years older, my older brother's age, um, who's talking about how he had challenges when he was young. He was a hypochondriac or whatever. Uh, but uh, that's what he says. Who writes an article and says, I was a hypochondriac? I mean... Who admits to it? Yeah. Right? I mean, what you would say is, I was sick. <laughs> you don't say, I was a hypochondriac. I mean, that's a ridiculous. Of, a lot of childhood illnesses. <laughs> <laughs> that's nuts. But anyway, so this guy is a little bit weird. So anyway, he says, I was a hypochondriac. But here's what got me over the hump. I got interested in sports. And he starts talking about his sports experiences, and they parallel mine, so they matter, right? I mean, this resonates with me. He's talking about, um, you know, watching um, football today, uh, being mesmerized by watching, uh, well, he actually went to the closed-circuit uh, production of uh, Ali versus Frazier. Uh, that was a little bit out of my price range. But then reading about the article in Sports Illustrated, in the cover story, written by Mark Cram. I remember reading that Sports Illustrated article uh-huh. by Mark Cram. Mm-hmm. And Sports Illustrated had great writers then. So mm-hmm. you got you probably got more out of the event almost by reading about uh-huh. it uh, than, than watching it. I mean, he quotes Cram, The scene cannot be forgotten. This good and gallant man lying there embodying the remains of a will never before seen in a ring. A will that had carried him so far and now surely too far. Talking about Frazier getting beat mm-hmm. up by Ali. I mean, they really could write. And then and talking about watching the NFL highlights with John Facenda, the so-called voice of God. That's what mm-hmm. he was called, like the uh-huh. God of Sod, doing uh, the commentary. <clears throat> These were all the experiences that we all grew up with. Um, and uh, as he sums it up here, he says, look, sports is not the most important thing in my life, but it has made my life more fun-filled, with more joyful memories, and a little more inspired. And maybe like me, you'd be a different person and a lesser person if sports had never been an essential part of your life. I think that's true. I think there's something there. He also says... But doesn't everybody have something in their life that did that? Right. Well, in this case, it was sports and that resonated yeah, and with the, me. The idea is it's just shocking that sports would do that? It's so not that's shocking. This is Listen, a the, big ti- deal? the Times is not limited to what's shocking, okay? They, they, I don't even think that's in the Times. This is the Times. Are you sure? Yeah, it is the okay. Times. Okay. Uh, and he also talks about how he, he keeps up with his brothers that way. So I resonate with that. Too. Okay, that's just me. Let's move on. You got something else? No, no, no else? that's fine. This is, you know. But it's not unexpected. It's not know? unexpected, but it's so... I can see you writing that article. That's my point. But that's what you, makes it a good article. You want to write the article, you know, uh, listening to sports. Yeah. Is, uh, has changed my life. Well, has made my life. The article's because called... Because you always say, you don't need to... 
Look, look at the title of the article. Yeah. Watching and listening to sports made me... You, you I, barely acknowledge watching sports. That's wrong. For you, it's all about the listening. Listening, yeah. So almost gilding the lily by being able to watch <laughs> well, and listen. It is, it is very evocative <clears throat> to listen to a baseball game. I'm one of the few people you know... It's who's not been evocative to... at all. How many times have I fallen into a deep sleep... You could, listening to a baseball game. That's not the game. answer. You could fall in a deep sleep, uh, you know, watching a lot of fascinating things, honey. That's, oh, really? Yes. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. All right. Go ahead. What do you got? Speaking of deep sleep. Yeah. How about 16th century code breaking? Yeah. Well, that's... that's, that's Actually, why I, this was an interesting uh, article. Really? Yes. Really? Well, you, you found it. I did. Um... And uh, it's the story of um, sort of uh, deciphering some letters yeah. written by Mary, Queen of Scots, yeah. in like between the 1570s, 1580s, yeah. right? And they were de- they were deciphered by they're written in code. They're written in code. Yeah. Okay. German pianist, Israeli computer scientist, and a Japanese astrophysicist. Okay, like in their spare time. This sounds like a joke. No, it's not a joke. So there's three guys in the room. No, they're... they're, (laughs) An astrophysicist. Yeah, what? There are these efforts that go... There's there's some, I don't know, organization or whatever called Decipher. Yeah. And uh, people, you know, take on these deciphering challenges. She had an eighth grade education or something? They couldn't decipher her code? She had been ciphering... She had been (laughs) writing in cipher since she was nine years old. Why? Because it, it was a normal thing at that time for especially royalty yeah. and wealthy people. Yeah. Um, because you didn't want, uh, you know, in order to have private correspondences. Uh, you, know, you didn't want people right. um, knowing what you wrote. So it, so there were all kinds of ciphers. And I've read about it before. Um, Marie Antoinette writing in code. Yeah, but apparently especially. this is an incredibly so sometimes complex... sometimes you're writing to your lover and right. you don't know what people... Well, as one does. people to know um, what you're on saying. On to that. But the point but, is, this had to be an incredibly complicated code if you had Incredibly to complicated, okay? Well, I, that's what it, I don't understand. It was um, no words, no letters, only graphics. Yeah. And there's like 50,000 of them or something. And um, it was so complex that even though they break... It took them a couple of months. These yeah. three guys working in their spare time, right? Yeah. Um, it took them three months to break the code. But then the big work was transcribing everything um, so it could be processed by computer software, you know, so it could be read by, you know, yeah. digested by algorithms or whatever. And, uh, um, you know, transcribed who paid, into letters. Who paid, who paid these guys? Three months they did this? Somebody must have been behind this effort. Yeah. It's called Decipher. Okay. Some kind right. of group. Right. I don't know who funds it exactly. All right. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, so it tells a story of par- partially, uh, uh, tells a lot about her cat- captivity. You know, yeah. she was right. uh, I've, imprisoned. I've seen the movies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. By Queen Elizabeth. Right. She's in a, she was a threat to the. She's in a tower looking out there. Right. I don't know. She's always played guess, by. Guess Steve. who her son is? Uh, the next king or something. Uh, Jamie of Scotland, right? Yeah. yeah okay. Isn't yeah, that funny? Yeah. Um, so, uh, not our Jamie, but, you know, yeah, I, um, King James. Yeah. And uh, so, anyway, uh, there's a. So, uh, what else do I want to say about it? You know, it's giving. It's a huge amount of information. It's like 55 letters. Yeah. All right. 
and which will give them huge insights to things about she talks about, uh, you know, her conditions. She's strategizing to find more supporters, uh, ways to escape, um, uh, et cetera, and so forth. So it, it should give huge, it should be like sort of world changing uh, okay. about uh, what Very we know about stuff. her. It's the biggest thing in a hundred years. Uh, to be discovered about her. Another interesting thing, I mean, they did all kinds of stuff back then. She's also famous for another thing called the spiral lock, which is where you kind of have a fancy way of folding your letter and kind of cutting a sliver and weaving it through the letter so it can't be opened by anybody. It's kind of a security system, all Mm -hmm. right? And uh, she wrote a letter on the eve of her execution. Yeah. And in this spiral lock, and it wasn't uh, really able to be read until 2021. M- MIT, they're able with a computer yeah. to see into X-ray um, the folded-up letter. Oh God! And uh, be able to reassemble it virtually and read it. Wow. So, I mean, all of this is very exciting. I assume there's a lot more. They didn't even know. No one even knew this was written in French, so to speak. Um, they thought it was, it was in a, in a French, in the French National Library. Yeah. They thought it was Italian or something. They didn't know what the heck it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was finally uh, uh, all figured out. But it, it just tells you, we're going to find out a lot of more things, right. I think, uh, being able to, you know, it's interesting to do the archaeology where you're digging up dirt and bones right. and, and scraps. This is another kind of archaeology that uh, is just fascinating and is probably going to give us some really new and interesting pictures of the past as opposed to how we've been understanding it okay. so far. Well, it's interesting. So I have just two comments that we'll close on folks who passed away. One is a fellow named Ron Lubinsky who, uh, as they say, is an architect who built stadiums with fans in mind. So he was the architect for Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City uh, and Giants Stadium shortly thereafter. And I think everyone was aware at that time that the the Giants Stadium was just patterned on Arrowhead and later for uh, Hard Rock Stadium in Miami. And one of the things that he was the leader on was the notion of having single-purpose stadiums. Before that, you had stadiums that they would fool around and move things around, whether it was baseball or football or whatever. And he said, no, 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 no. We're going to have the kind of amenities and the kind of setup that is special to football. It seems kind of wasteful, but it turns out that was the wave of the future. It did work that much better. Why does it work better? Because the shape of the stadium just lends itself to one sport or another. Uh, and I can tell you that, uh, you know, when they used to reconfigure Shea Stadium for football, it didn't work out very well. Um so, look, I, I, I don't go to enough games. As you well know, I usually listen on the radio. But uh, <laughs> uh, that, that became the way he was right. But what was funny to me was they make the point that he retired in t- the year 2000. And if you do the math here, it would have been 65 then. And scaled back the scope of his architectural projects. He built a two-story addition to his house, a pagoda-like design studio for a neighbor, a playhouse for his granddaughter, and a bed designed like a Ferrari for his grandson. <laughs> and that's the, all the work he did once he retired? Yeah. What do you mean all the work he did? That's the important work he did when he retired. That's what you're supposed to the say. The Ferrari bed. The Ferrari yeah. bed. He might have been the first one. You see those now. So 
here's something. Uh, Burt Backrack passed away. There have been a lot of articles about that, and we're all familiar with Burt Backrack. Uh, he was in his 90s, and he, you know, he was a great pop singer, but they had pop composer. But they had an article in the Times about him working on Broadway, and as you also know, he uh, he had one big hit, one show and one big hit, which was Promises, Promises. Uh, it's the musical version of The Apartment, the movie with Jack Lemmon. And this is the story in the Times is about so that. CD and I went to see the revival of that, right? right but I yeah. went to see the original. So what, well, you're you, older than me and Sadie. <laughs> That's how that works. Thank you very much. What did you think of the revival? Uh, we thought it was a lot of fun. It was with uh, Kristen, Kristen Chenoweth. Chenoweth and... What? Uh, the fellow in the Oscar Levant. Sean Hayes. Yeah, Sean Hayes. Right. It was fun. But it's mostly Kristen Chenoweth. But yes, yeah. Well, because they added other songs. You know, they changed the, the play. Whatever. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, his music is... Listen, his music is catchy... Uh, what I learned after reading all these articles, frankly, is that it's challenging. It's challenging to play and challenging to sing, which I never thought about. And the reason they all, that's always given is, and don't ask me what this means, that he would change time signatures, change the tempo several times during the song. And that made it hard for people to do, but maybe it made it catchy too. And that's why Dionne Warwick was a singular interpreter of his music, because she, she was, was able to do that. it. She was good at that. Listen, but, there's, one ex- there's one exception. Yeah. To promises, promises. Yeah. Turkey lurky time. I thought this was the worst song ever. Worst I, I, song ever. And it makes right no sense. Right up there with Shaboopy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shaboopy, it's right up there from Music Man. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to argue with you. I and they play it and they play it on, on the Broadway channel. It doesn't channel. even work. It, it doesn't fit. It doesn't it, make any it sense. It I, makes no sense. Some and money changed hands, and, and it goes there. on. And it goes, and it goes on for well. So worse. But that's why this article. This article doesn't spend time on that. What it. What it. And two things I'll just observe. In response to your turkey lurkey time, David Merrick was the producer, and he was a hard guy to work with. And one of the themes of the article is that it was he was hard enough to work with that Backrack never wanted to do another show. Um, and uh, for several reasons, whether I could go into or not, but um, he's very demanding. And when he watched the show in previews, he said, uh, you need a hit song in the second act which is not what the composer wants. What do you mean you need a hit song in the second act? And it, it was at a time when uh, Backrack was sick with pneumonia. He was still in California. Hal David, his his lyricist, was in New York dealing with Merrick. And Hal David writes a lyric real fast. And he comes in from California being sick. And uh, the song is... Um, um, I'll Never Fall in Love Again. Mm-hmm. Right, <clears throat> what you do when you kiss a guy? You get enough germs to catch pneumonia, and apparently that's the lyric <laughs> that that Hal David wrote. And then he he said maybe because I was sick, I wrote the the, the melody in like twenty seconds, <laughs> and it was boom. But I will. And then the other point is about and the article says that he really changed music on Broadway. It was the first. This is nineteen sixty eight. It was the first example of pop music on Broadway. And I will tell you that when I saw the original, did I mention I saw the original? I, I saw the yeah. original in 68 or 69. At one point... 1868? Yeah, yeah, 1968. At one point, a woman playing the, the, what you would call the Kristen Chenoweth part, the main female part, comes on at the beginning of the second act to sing that song. Yeah. Right? I'll never fall in love again. But the way she does it is she walks into the living room. She takes a guitar. I don't know if Chenoweth did this. 
with no orchestra, no band, nothing, and just plays the song like she's a singer-songwriter. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you get when, you know, you get enough germs to cast pneumonia? And I had, I, I'm saying to myself, I Can you do that? Yeah, can you do <laughs> That was like, you know, that was that was a singer-songwriter thing. It might have been, you know, like Carol King would do. I mean, to, to have someone do that in a Broadway theater seemed bizarre. And, and they make that point here. They say it was a complete departure from anything they previously did. And the point they make in the article is, the rhythms, the kind of music changed Broadway so much so that it opened the way for a show like Company, which opened 16 months later. They said you wouldn't, and they talk about other detailed changes that went with that music. They said you wouldn't have had Company if you didn't have promises, promises. As a matter of fact, uh, they quote a music critic named Will Freewold saying, if I were hearing another hundred people from Company for the first time, uh, I would have guessed it was by Backrack, not Sondheim. That's how much it changed. And, I guess and you can say these things now that uh, these they're both dead, have passed they're, away. Yeah, you I guess know? you couldn't and, say that when they were alive. Uh, I, I don't know, but it ends. I, with, I mean, I wonder if it's true or if just they uh, end with a saying. You know, uh, it's too bad that uh, you know Bacharach didn't write more for Broadway because he would have seen things that paralleled Sondheim if he had continued to writing for Broadway, which I've never heard anybody say. And it was interesting to see it in the Times. So uh, that was that. These things are these things are being worked on forever. Yeah. What can I tell you? That's the that, idea that Sondheim it was in the New went York to Times. promises, promises, and Six, was inspired. Sixteen months later. Yeah. I, well, I but know. but they also said that you know it lent itself to the way it was produced. Yeah. Well, here's something. Okay, just to back up this point. They said one of the key things that was different was the way things were orchestrated. Again, I'm going back to the, the actress playing the guitar. The person who orchestrated Promises, Promises orchestrated company. Same person. Okay? Okay, so that... that All right, now I'm making my yeah. case, right? Okay. Now you're making your case. All right. the, the idea that uh, Backrack just, you know, totally invented uh, yeah. pop music on Broadway. Yeah, it was a fellow named uh, Tunic. I forget his I think it's Stanley Tunic. Uh, it's here somewhere. But in any event, there you have it. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. So that's all we have. That's it for this week, although I think it was quite a bit. Uh, and we'll uh, see you next week. Yeah, I would stick around, but I got to go water my ranunculus. Oh, yeah. It's just beautiful. Those are beautiful flowers. Beautiful. <laughs> I don't Tamsin know. Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. Uh, Tamsin and Dan reading the paper. They're, they're quite expensive, too. See you next week.